Welcome back to the Incidental Encyclical Podcast. It's an accompanying podcast for our quarterly online magazine on the classics. But Sam, what does it mean for something to be incidental? Well, for something to be incidental means it comes as a byproduct or a natural cause of something greater. And what about an encyclical? Well, an encyclical is a letter from a higher authority meant to be passed on indefinitely, in perpetuity. Together, this endeavour is something that has come naturally almost by chance, from our own love of studying the classics. Letters that come to us from a bygone age telling us of the past, of a way to live our life, the patterns of behaviour that spiral from then to now and into the future. This quarter, we are approaching our topic of strife within. And for our chosen medieval work for this quarter, we will be covering Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Normally, with the podcast we record to accompany the magazine, we do one main episode covering all three works in brief and how they tie into our main theme. And we often do a bonus podcast as well, doing a deep dive into one of the particular works that represents a challenge to us as editors to write about. But um, we've already done our bonus episode for this quarter, Levi. We did it on Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, a thousand-page psychological novel about a family torn apart from the inside by the sins of their father. So why is it that we're coming now to do a second episode uh, a second bonus episode on Sir Gawain the Green Knight. Outside of the fact that it's just one of our favourite works of it literature, is. Sam. Well, it's also Christmas time. It is, And hey. Sir Gawain and the, and the Green Knight is a Christmas story. Takes place at Yuletide and New Year's. Takes place at two Yuletides and New Year's. Really? What happens in between those two? It's summarised in a single stanza of the poem. <laughs> it is, actually. It's not very exciting. No. Or it is, but well, it doesn't get much... <laughs> much attention. So then, if that's not the important part, what is? All right. Well, the story starts at Christmas time, where Sir Gawain is feasting along with his other knights, his uh, comrades of the Knights of the Round Table at Arthur's court at Camelot. And uh, it's a jovial time when their festivities are interrupted by the titular Green Knight. Right. So they've been feasting for Yuletide and they've been to Mass and come into the hall, but Arthur has this strange custom, a strange tradition. In fact, there are lots of strange customs in this story which form maybe the drive of the tension for our hero. Arthur won't sit down and eat until he's heard some new tale or seen a brave new deed or something of the kind that will surprise him. I mean, we can imagine here maybe this story takes place when Arthur's an older, established hero and he's done a lot, seen a lot, and his knights have too. Mm. So there's not a lot left in the world to surprise him. Now, there's a bit of tension established here already. Not only does Arthur have this strange custom, but there's a problem. Gawain, unlike the other knights at the table, is yet to do anything of note. Mm, exactly. Obviously, none of the Arthurian tales are you know, collected in a single storyline or timeline in the way we might imagine a, a, even something like the Trojan epic cycle, which has a relatively yeah. set narrative of events. The Arthurian legends are very loosely connected. But the emphasis in The Green Knight does seem to imply that all of the other knights have had respective adventures. But Gawain is merely a knight by reference to the fact that he is Arthur's nephew. Right, so he's a uh, nepotism hire. Indeed, you know, he's... But he doesn't want it to be that way. He's not happy being known just as Arthur's nephew. He wants, you know, an adventure of his own. Fair enough. And so one comes in the form of a Christmas challenge. As you mentioned, the feasting is interrupted by the arrival of one half of the title of this poem, The, the Green Knight. And indeed, The Green Knight comes in and he lays down this challenge after shocking everyone with his 
green visage. And his monstrous size. And his horse of equally green... Uh, is his horse also green? His horse is also green. His horse and is all also... of the trappings of the horse. Indeed. Even it's his a... axe. Indeed. And he, uh, his challenge is offered thus. He says, someone should come here and they will deal me a blow. Deal me a cut. I will not... You know, and in a year's time, they will have to come find me and I will deal them a blow in kind. Now, uh, this might sound like a strange challenge. Um, and it is. It's definitely meant to sort of throw the reader into some sort of consternation, as it does the court itself. But this is drawing from, I mean, many of the, the games and customs within Sir Gawain and the Green Knight are drawing from Celtic myth and legend. So this game, as it features in Sir Gawain the Green Knight, is often referred to as the beheading game. And it's a feature that pops up in the legends of Cuchulain, the Irish hero. Mm. Um, so there is a referent uh, that we would you, you could assume that most people of the British Isles might have to the context of this challenge. But at the same time, the way in which it occurs at Christmas time during a time of peace, of festivity and of joy is strange. But the knight does reassure the court, doesn't he? I mean, he's come not wearing armour. Exactly. He is here in, in good spirit. He's mm. not here as an explicit threat to anyone. He just wants to, you know, partake in the festivities in his own, you know, brutish ways, perhaps. Yes. End of the world type ways. End of the world type ways, yeah. indeed. And Arthur is tempted, is inclined to accept this challenge on his own. Yeah. I mean, uh, after all, he has the reputation of a, of a king. Exactly. And it is, you know, it's customary that the the king takes priority of the challenge or the 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 lord of the current t gathering but gawain steps in specifically to uh hinder this from occurring and makes the uh, uh the argument to his uncle that you know you and all of the other knights they've had their chance to prove their glory mm. let this be mine i haven't had yet you know any chance to make a name for myself yeah uh, and so Gwen steps up in, you know, youthful exuberance. And the fact that it's a beheading game is never specified. It's not, yeah. It's implied by the context, perhaps. But, you know, it, it is deal me a blow, deal me a cut. Uh, Gawain does take it as a beheading game, though, and steps I mean, it's up. not helped by the fact that the Green Knight gets down, takes the hair away from the nape of his neck, and kneels before Gawain, proffering the naked neck quite... Uh, tantalizingly. <laughs> true, true. I, I should I should be more generous to Gawain. He isn't just a hot headed, you know, yeah. young kid. I don't think you could reach that neck anyway without the benefit <laughs> of the kneeling down. Indeed, indeed. Well and Gawain steps up and chops the knight's head clean off. End of story, right? Well I mean you think so. There's nothing, nothing happens after a beheading. But What, a Charles the First scenario where he talked for thirty seconds afterward? It's a bit more than 30 seconds. In fact, the knight stands up, gathers his head, continues to speak while he's climbing back on his horse, head under his arm, and says, in a year hence, come find me at the Green Chapel, and I shall deal, return to you the blow. Well, I mean, talk about, uh, talk about a setup, right? I know. It's... So Gawain's beheaded a man who apparently can't be killed by beheading and now has to seek him out only to be beheaded himself. Now, I'm not a knight of the round table, but I feel like on the scale of things that a knight might have to do to win his spurs, 
this is going maybe to the extreme. Indeed, indeed. I'd rather just live a chase life and find a grail. <laughs> that sounds like the easier option than getting my head cut off. <laughs> true, true. Well, um, Gawain does have a, a year to build up to this. He has a year to prepare himself. He does little to prepare himself. The, the year goes very quickly. Uh, In fact, I think Gawain is a little bit reluctant to head off indeed. once the year begins to draw towards Yuletide once more. But he, he does head off as it is and travels far and wide to the end of the world. Wales. Wales. And he uh, has some encounters along the way. Do you wish to... Yeah, I believe it's mentioned that he fights some wolves, dire wolves. He fights some ogres, a worm, so a, a dragon by another parlance. In fact, various monsters of all great sizes, but Gawain isn't troubled by any of them at all. Mm. Uh, he's actually mentioned in this little travel segment as a paragon of chivalry. Uh, he carries with him a shield with the five-pointed star, the pentangle on it, and with an icon of the Mother of God on the inside. The five-pointed star represents five sets of five. His five senses and five fingers, which have never failed him. The five chivalric virtues. The five wounds on Christ, of Christ on the cross. And the five joys of the Virgin Mary. So carrying this emblem of his faith, his physical prowess, his mental acuity, and of his personal valour and virtue, he sets forth and defeats all manner of quickly mentioned beasties on his route through Wales to the very edge of the world. Mm. And it's getting rather near to New Year's. To Christmas Day, uh, to, I To believe. Christmas yes. Day, I, 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 sorry. Uh, it's getting rather near to Christmas Day and he still hasn't been able to find the Green Chapel. And he's getting rather worried about this. And he's, he's asking around, he's asking all those he meets of any sign of do you know of the Green Chapel? Do you know where I might find it? Do you know where I might find someone who might know where to find the Green Chapel? And almost on the point of despair, thinking at this point that he's almost would rather fail in finding the Green Knight than skip Mass on Christmas Day, he sees a castle in the distance and thinks, well, even if I can't find this Green Chapel, perhaps at this castle I'll find a church and at least be able to go to Mass on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So, riding up to the gates, he asks. He asks, indeed, like, first, if I may, may join, and does anyone know of the Green Chapel, or where I might find the Green Knight? And upon being admitted, the Lord of the Castle, Bertilac, tells him promptly, oh, it's just down the road, I can show you there at any time. In fact, stay for the week until New Year's, when your challenge expires, and you'll be there within half a day. There's no rush, there's no need. I will be your host, and you're my guest for the next week over Christmas. We'll feast... We'll celebrate this holy time, and at the end of that, you will go off and meet the challenge. Indeed. In his time at the castle, which, you know, Gwen is happy to accept the invitation, Bertolac proposes, in addition to the other festivities and the, you know, the religious celebrations, a certain Christmas game. Another one. I think Gawain's having bad luck with these. He should probably say no right at the outset before he even hears what the challenge is. Well, he doesn't. Dear and me. he's more than happy to accept and Bertilac, uh has the following conditions, that uh, they shall meet the end of each of three days, and they shall give each other all that they have received in that day, or all that they have acquired in that day. Right. So what is it exactly that Gawain's expecting to acquire, or that Bertilac himself is? Well, Bertilac on each of the relevant days, goes hunting and comes back with games such as boar or deer, vixen, I can't remember the specifics, but it's not important. Gawain... Some people do try and find symbolism in the animals, but I think overall, 
the broader context of the game, as we're about to discover, is really what the story is driving at. Indeed, and it's what Gawain finds in those days uh, staying at Berthelach Castle. For he, uh, he's not going out hunting, he's not acquiring anything as such, except the attentions of Berthelach's wife. Scandalous. Now, Gawain is meant to be the paragon of chivalry, but also he's meant to show knightly courtesy towards all women that he meets. Indeed. And Berthelach's wife, who he sees in the first day, he reckons even fairer than Guinevere, the prophesied fairest maiden in the land. Indeed. This is how alluring the wife of his host is. And the problem isn't just that she's pretty, the problem is that she is rather forceful in throwing her attentions upon him. Indeed, she greets him in bed, or she, she greets him in his room while he still reclines in bed most mornings. And while he's in bed, over the course of those three days, she tempts him further and further into some euphemistic misconduct. Indeed. So, Bertilak's going hunting, bringing back boar, deer, female foxes, all of which he'll present to Gawain at the end of each of these days. What is it that Gawain can receive from this amorous but married woman that he can still deliver to Bertilak without it being scandalous to have received in the first place, nor to deliver in the second? Indeed. Well, the first day, he returns, and uh, Bertilak offers his game of the day. And Gawain returns him a single kiss. All right. All Does right. he tell him it was from his wife? No, of course not. Fair uh, play. It's, it's not necessary for the game. Suppose Bertilak doesn't have to tell him where the game came from. Indeed, indeed. He'd be going down to the Tesco. Indeed. And on the second day, Gawain receives two kisses from Bertilak's wife, which he passes on in kind to Bertilak in thanks for the gift of that day. On the third day, however, things take... A different turn. Bertilak's wife on the third day gets a little bit more forceful with Gawain. She's been slowly pressing her attentions on him over the course of the days, and Gawain's been very chaste in being never being rude to her, never breaking the, the code of courtesy, but also keeping his honour and chivalry intact. But on the third day, she offers him not merely sensual pleasure or a chance to lie with her, but something else, which Gawain takes much more of a fancy to much more quickly. Indeed. Well, at first she offers him a golden ring, a keepsake of their time together, and, you know, a token of the connection she feels she has to him. This he refuses, politely but firmly. But then she says, at least take my sash, my green girdle. It's been charmed such that he who wears it may never fall. Now this, you know, put yourself in Gawain's shoes here. He's known this is the last day he's going to be here. Tomorrow he's going to have to go out and greet almost certain death in the beheading game. This girdle is very tempting. The promise with the girdle is that no man may be felled by a blow while wearing it. Indeed. And that's exactly what Gawain fears here. So, here, Gawain... You know, accepts. He accepts. Now, what's going to happen? I mean, he's meant to give Bertilak everything which he receives, and yet, if he gives the belt up, there was no point in taking it in the first place. Indeed, and it would entirely reveal the source of his affections, most likely. So, when Bertilak comes home that day, Gwen gives him three kisses, and notably, not the belt. So, we've come to that final part of the poem, the fourth book of four, 
which Gawain must ride forth and confront on New Year's, his apparent doom. Indeed. And so, he rides out to the Green Chapel where he has been directed to, to confront the Green Knight and the... First thing that he encounters of the Green Knight is but the sound of a whetstone grinding against metal as the huge man. In the first book, uh, it's mentioned that he is half a troll in size, I trowel. And this man, you know, at least twice size Gawain is there sharpening the instrument of death. Indeed, that's rather ominous. So Gawain approaches and the Green Knight asks him if he's ready. And Gawain, confident in the sash he wears, kneels down and presents his neck. The Green Knight swings the axe up, brings it down and stops. Doesn't bring it anywhere near the neck of Gawain. Sorry, doesn't bring it into contact with the neck of Gawain. Gawain is a little bit confused, maybe even a little bit frustrated. And the Green Knight raises it again. And the second time brings it down and stops short. Gawain now beginning to get more flustered as the Green Knight raises it for the third time, brings it down and nicks the back of Gawain's neck with the slightest of scratches. Immediately, Gawain jumps up, draws his sword, and claims that the challenge is over, and if he wants any more, have to come and take it by force. Now, the Green Knight seems to find this both somewhat funny and somewhat offensive, right? Mm. I know that the challenge is over. I deliberately dealt you a nick, and it's here that a revelation is made. Indeed. The Green Knight is none other than his host, Bertilak, transformed by the magic of the witch Morgan Le Fay. The student of Merlin. Well, I mean, what, 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 what occurs in the face of this revelation? Bertilak says that each of the swings is to symbolise the three temptations that he faced. Gawain passed the first, he passed the second, but on the third day he hid from Bertilak the green girdle that he was meant to also offer up. So therefore, the Green Knight, or Bertilak in his form, was compelled to punish Gawain for his dishonesty and his breaking of both the code of hospitality, the rules of the game, and his valour as a knight, Mm. with the mark on the back of his neck. Now Gawain, after this, will ride back to the castle at Camelot, bearing with him the girdle, and upon his return, everyone will celebrate him. Indeed. And see the green sash as a trophy of his ordeal with the green knight and congratulate him for finally have done something of knightly valour. Indeed. But how does Gawain take this whole thing? Well, Gawain, in, in one of the last stanzas, he says quite explicitly, this sash is to, beto- to betoken the breach of my troth, to betoken my, my breach of the code of hospitality, my truthfulness, my honour. Indeed, my value as let's say, a Christian knight. So this is a symbol of disgrace, whereas others are seeing it perhaps as a trophy of honour. Gawain's is quite the opposite. Indeed, it is, you know, a striking symbolic move from his Gawain's representation initially by the pentangle and the icon of Mary on the inside of a shield. Now he's directly contrasted with the green girdle, which, you know, Mm. well, represents the opposite of all of the knightly values that with which he exited from Camelot. So, 
let's go in here. We've recapped the story for everybody. Mm. We've begun to move into some of the meanings inherent that we're going to be bringing out in this issue. Um, and so there's a lot going on. And as you mentioned, there's a massive difference between the way that Gawain is represented early in the story, the pentangle, the icon of Mary, mm. and the girdle later on. So a girdle carries with it something of a scandalous undertone, Indeed. right? It goes around a woman's waist. It's not the sort of thing that a man should just be no. passing around, especially when it comes from a woman married to somebody who has been his host. Indeed. That sort of thing is, I think, hopefully, even as modern people, we can see that we're wearing something that's very close to underwear. Indeed. <laughs> around your shoulders, which you got off a married woman whose husband looked after you over Christmas. Indeed. Right, there's something off about that. Indeed. And Gawain doesn't discard it, though. No. So he seems to, and as you mentioned, he wears it out of, almost as a penance. Indeed. A mark to remind him constantly of the failing, of his own failing. Indeed. It's, it's interesting, because it's not a... Indeed, all the other knights view it as a triumphant return. But for Gawain, the story does end in a form of tragedy. Because he, he has betrayed himself and his values. And it's not necessarily clear. He's, he's come out of the other side chastised, perhaps. Mm, but not but, chased. But not chased. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in this story. Um, and there are three games at play. Now, there's a lot of... Uh, some scholars have questioned, right, whether or not the story of Sir Gawain and the, whether the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight could have been written by the English poet we accredit it to. Mm. Um, perhaps unfairly, because they think that no Englishman could have come up with a plot so good, it must have been an <laughs> earlier French invention, because the French seem to have written all the good romances. Indeed, indeed. Um, but putting that aside, the reason why it's such a remarkable plot is because it's weaving together three traditional stories, two of which come out of very old myth. We mentioned already the beheading game is a feature of Irish mythology in the stories of Cucullin. There's also the game of the exchange of winnings which is another feature in Old Welsh and Celtic uh, mythological sources. But the third, the, the temptation game, is mm. something new and very particular to the Christian world. Indeed. Um, it's not really a factor of the ancient, of the pagan, of the pre-Christian hero to worry too much about his interactions with a lady. Indeed. Uh, famously, for example, in the story told by Herodotus and Plato of Gyges, the man who hides himself and observes his master, the king's wife, naked, when this treachery is found out, he simply kills the king and takes his place, marrying the woman who he once spied on. Yes. Right? That's sort of the feature of... There's not, the temptation game there is resolved very quickly by the yeah. guy just saying, well, I suppose I'll overthrow the king. Indeed. But this is interesting because we're dealing with the idea of strife within. Indeed. And part of this theme that we're trying to unpack is the idea of rebellion. Indeed. Is the idea of having a code, a law that is delivered to you that doesn't make your life easier, but actually creates strife. Mm. It causes you to see yourself perhaps as inadequate or unwilling to face up to the standard that's been delivered to you. And you now have to turn inward and face a conflict that begins in yourself. Mm. And so Gawain and the Green Knight in particular is dealing with this on a lot of levels. So on one level, it's very trivial, right? Mm. He's playing Christmas games. Exactly. Winning or losing a Christmas game or breaking the rules of a Christmas game, 
usually isn't a particularly egregious offence. Exactly. It's like cheating at Monopoly over Christmas dinner. Yeah. But <laughs> the Christmas games taking place in this particular story tend to be a bit more extreme. Indeed. These aren't simple, courtly games. No. The first one involves life and death, and the later one involves the honour of a husband and wife and their guest. Mm. So Gawain, and it's Bertilak both times, putting his challenges forth, influenced by Morgan the Fae. But Bertilak is putting Gawain up to challenges that are going to possibly ruin his life. Indeed. And seeing how he fares. Now, as I mentioned, Christmas games are typically a lower level of, of strife, Mm. of conflict, right? The question of how you will conduct yourself in a game, uh, a holiday game, is not always the most paramount struggle you will contend with in your life. Mm. But the way that Gawain tells uh, the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight uh, unfolds is that Gawain is seen as nested in a series of different rules. A hierarchy of rules, you might say. Or like... um, a babushka doll. A babushka doll. A babushka doll of rules, of values, of systems, right? Indeed. And so the pentangle is a good symbol of that, really. It's the idea that all of the things that define him interlock, right? Mm. And if one is broken, the rest may also fall away. Now, Gawain breaches the Christmas game. Indeed. Does it end there? Well, no, but here's the thing, because he, in accepting the girdle, he loses the temptation game, being played by Bertilak's wife. And then in hiding the girdle from Bertilak, he's losing the... Exchange of winnings game. Exactly, exchange of winnings game. Or he's not losing, sorry, I should say, uh, he's breaking the code of yes. that game. He's and cheated. Then, he's cheated. And in wearing the girdle to the chapel, he's also cheated, in fact. Because he's relying on, on a talisman, on... Magical on help. the magical help to avoid the consequences of his own actions. Now this again, we'll pause because there's more to say about the, mm. the nested babushka dolls of rules, but you bring up the fact that he's relying on a magical item or a talisman, mm. which as we mentioned earlier, somewhat scandalous, somewhat sexual, Indeed. right? a Indeed. symbol of woman in perhaps uh, in the medieval mindset, in the sort of image of Eve, as they might describe it in medieval language. Mm. And yet, he has been hence, up, up until this point, as we mentioned, carrying a symbol of, as the medievals call it, heavenly woman, right? Indeed. Mary. Mary. So, there's an, as, you, as we brought out a little bit earlier, and if we're unpacking a little bit more now, the change that occurs between a symbol of womanhood that is meant to be perfect and mm. an unfailing guide to him he substitutes for something he won by cheating, will use to cheat, and is hidden in an act of cheating. Indeed. Um, now, we use the word cheating in a sexual context today, and we use the word play in that context too, mm-hmm. and gaming and sporting. All of these can be used in the modern era to carry that kind of undertone. Indeed. And um, this is actually a feature of, of language, really, going back to time immemorial. Indeed, there's, it's, uh, it's interesting you bring this up, Sam. Uh, there's this very interesting interplay. There's the Hebrew word, for right. example, for to laugh or to play a game is used of mocking or of you know, laughter in disbelief. Mm. It's also used in sexual contexts. Then the Greek word 
that the uh, you know the Septuagint translators of the you know three hundred BC mm. who are translating the Hebrew Bible into Old Greek uh, used to uh, translate this Hebrew term. They vary it. They used laughter. They also use uh, to paizdein uh, to play as a child. It's not childlike necessarily though. Sometimes it's used in mockery. Sometimes it's used of husband and wife. Right. So not just in English do we have euphemisms around games, play, and cheating for mm. sexual acts, but it's a feature of Greek and Hebrew and languages that have preceded our own. Indeed, absolutely. So there's something going on. Mm. We'll go back to those babushka dolls, the nesting sets of rules. When Gawain cheats on one level or breaks the rules on one level, that fracture moves all the way out, mm-hmm. right? You can't put yeah. a stick of dynamite in the middle of a Bushka doll and expect the outer shell to remain intact. <laughs> and Gawain drops a massive stick of dynamite by using a magical talisman when he's meant to be a Christian paragon of virtue. Indeed, indeed. A, a magical talisman, let's add, that he received through a very raunchy series of interactions with a married woman. Yes. Now, up to this point, he kept his faith in that last instance, as Bertolak would point out at the end of the beheading game, he failed. Mm. So what has Gawain broken? He's broken the rules of the Christmas game. So what? But in breaking the rules of the Christmas game, he's broken his sh- his courtesy towards mm-hmm. women. He's broken his chivalric honour as a mm. knight who can be trusted by his liege lord. And he's broken the code of hospitality, guest to host. Mm. I, would, I would move even further. He's broken his faith in God. Because in the conception of, uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon world, to substitute a talisman, is a form of cowardice, for now you have placed your faith in pagan magic, as opposed to, you know, the rightful will of God. It's, it's I mean, tantamount to, you know, it's the sort of thing that could get you anathematised. It's witchcraft, it almost. Is. And Morgan Le Fay, who has set this entire series of games up, mm. is a witch. Exactly. <laughs> so Gawain has substituted the saintly help of the Divine Mary for the magical help of the witch Morgan Le Fay. Mm. She is sort of an arch filler of the Arthur stories. There is as much censure, if not more censure, placed on Gawain than there ever is on Morgan Le Fay in this story. Absolutely. It's not surprising that a witch would want to trick a Christian knight into doing something wrong. Mm. Um, But Gawain fails on so many accounts, as we mentioned. We'll go from the bottom. He goes from the Christmas game. He's broken that rule. He's broken his courtesy towards women. If we want to move up or on a similar level to that, he's broken his role as a guest in the ho- the code of hospitality. Mm. He's broken his chivalric honour, the thing that defines him and makes him a knight. And as you mentioned, he's almost and finally broken his faith in God. Mm. So those five points that he was meant to stand for, well, all of them have collapsed. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so this story uh, as well... Um, is interesting for taking place at Christmas time. Indeed. Christmas time is midwinter. We don't experience this. We're both living in Australia. You have Northern European heritage, uh, and you've spent Christmases or or winters over in Europe. Yes, indeed. So I'm sure you could speak to this more than I can. But traditionally, and in in the setting in which Sir Gawain takes place, midwinter is a miserable time of year. Indeed. Travel in midwinter is especially dangerous. Yes, especially if you're going all the way to Wales. Reminder, it's the edge of the world. Nothing good's there. 
At least in the Arthurian <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Samuel Wilmot contends there is nothing good to be found in Wales. Well, they beat us and knocked us out of the Rugby World Cup this year, so I have no love at the moment. <laughs> um, but in this midwinter season... Uh, it is a feature of almost every culture in that Northern Hemisphere region to have some sort of festival of light, especially Indeed. in Europe, especially as you get further north in Europe. Exactly. And Christmas fills this role in the, in the Christian era. It takes the place of the pagan festivals and brings in a new festival of light celebrating the birth of uh, the divine into the world. So the fact that at this time of year, when Gawain is going to Mass and experiencing all the light mm. uh, that is filling a dark world, right? I mean, uh, candles, candles, candles everywhere, right? Yeah. It's a festival of light. There's, and then There's bonfires, there's roaring hearths at every castle and village and inn and house you would enter. And for this story to conclude or, or have its climax in, a gr- in the Green Chapel, right? Mm. This is not a building built by human hands, like a hollow in a hill. It's a dark, ominous, magical, otherworldly place that Gawain Indeed. is entering. And it, it's a place of nature as well. It's, it's the place of, oh, it's green. In a, in, a, you know, in a season of white, it's still fully green. Yes. And the evergreen, as much as it has become, especially like, let's say, since the Reformation, the Christmas tree has become a very popular decoration. Mm. And even mm. before that, there was the use of holly and mistletoe. Yes. But holly and mistletoe have very strong pagan connections and yes. always have. In fact, the Green Knight carries a sprig of them into the Camelot's uh, feasting hall when he first arrives as a token of peace. But everything about the, uh, about the Green Knight, about his abode, about his garb, about mm. the evergreen trappings is meant to tell us of this forgotten, maybe neglected at their peril, pagan world Mm. on the edges of Christendom. Exactly. So Gawain enters this, and instead of bringing light into it, he takes away from it a symbol of the green. Indeed. Instead of bringing light into the green chapel, he takes a pagan emblem back into Christmas Camelot. Exactly. I mean, Christmas time, by the way, um, in the Middle Ages, is very different now. We put up our Christmas trees the uh, 1st of December, after Halloween or Thanksgiving, depending mm. on what you celebrate, right? But, but usually very early on. Yeah. Um, traditionally, you don't start singing carols or anything like that or putting up trees until after Christmas itself. Christmas Day, perhaps. In, indeed, and it carries through to the New Year, whereas yes. we consider... We've separated out, in a sense, Christmas and New Year's as separate celebrations almost um i mean in the middle ages the year didn't even start in In, january so so of course they wouldn't have this conception of of that but um what's important is that as you come after new years what we would today characterize as new years um you enter into a series of festivals of light indeed you have the ascension of course you have the epiphany where christ is uh uh, yeah, yeah, so you have all these series of uh, mm. festivals, Christ presented at the temple, uh, the Magi worshipping Christ, the Ophany Epiphany, right? These mm. are festivals of light in the, the medieval world yeah. in East and West. And so we can imagine that Gawain, returning after some weeks riding from the Green Chapel, will be entering Camelot during the festivals of light. Indeed. And into that he brings... The girdle. The girdle. And so this is something... Um, 
perhaps not interesting to everybody. No. But to a medieval reader, they don't see this purely framed as in, oh, it's Christmas, then it's the firework night. Yes. Right? No. We still have a festival of lights on New Year's Eve, <laughs> interestingly enough. But to the to the medieval, it extends far beyond just Christmas Day Certainly. into the into the beginning of January as they celebrate continually yes. light in the world. And Gawain is going to be returning to the centre of English Christendom. Mm. And it's also notable, of course, that Christmas takes place very shortly after the winter solstice. Mm. Takes, the winter solstice is typically the 21st or the 22nd of December, the shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. Christmas takes place right after that. And so this is coming out of winter darkness. The day the sun is slowly returning. Yeah, and this is when the festivals of light are going exactly. to begin. Yes. But it, yeah, so it's an interesting, I think, it's not an arbitrary fact that all of this takes place at Christmas time. No, not at all. Um, and the other thing, and this is something that a lot of people love to point out, mm. um, and oftentimes for very silly reasons, I might go so, be so bold as to say stupid reasons, they will point out that, oh, uh, some Christmas traditions have pagan origins. Yeah. Oh, uh, Saturnalia happened around this time. Oh, etc., etc. et cetera. Mm. Now, I won't go into why things like that annoy me, yeah. why they're foolish. But they're not entirely wrong, right? No. Christians did take over some of the existing traditions of paganism and use them in service of the worship of Christ. Indeed. Um, you know, the, the, the symbolism the Boers had at Christmas did not originate no. in Christianity. The symbol of the Christmas tree, of mistletoe, right? No, if These you think things... Christmas trees were growing in Jerusalem... Or in Levant. Yes. You know, like spruce trees yeah. don't grow that far south. No. <laughs> now they, they began, you know, there was the adoption of the tree of life and the mm. cross with the tree. Yeah. Uh, the idea of the angel above it or the star, right? But it is true that a lot of Christmas customs are borrowing, mm. right? Or repurposing is probably a better word. Yeah. Transforming is even better, or transfiguring mm. the world as it was. Substantiating. Um <laughs> Forget that you have uh, sort of that Lutheran context. <laughs> Northern Europeans. Anyway, um, so there are these things that have connotations in the world that existed before Christianity came to it. Mm. And so it is it is important. It's not a feature, I think, that the medieval would have been oblivious to hearing or reading a story like So Gawain and the Green Knight. No. That during Christmas time, there is a thinner barrier between yeah. the otherworldly darker symbols of greenness mm. and then the Christian hope in the evergreen. Yeah. So this is the last symbol of green that we might might want to end on, mm. um, is that green, as a colour in the medieval period, it can symbolise the fairy. The evergreen can symbolise eternality. Mm -hmm. But green also uh, signifies fickle love. Indeed. Um, famously, the song Green Sleeves is a... <laughs> <laughs> There's the interesting myth of the song Green Sleeves. I should note that this is uh, apocryphal at best and likely false, but it's it's so... It's a wonderful tune. It's so wonderful, the fact that uh, everyone, you know, knows the traditional tune of Green Sleeves. Uh, it is rumoured to have been written by Henry VIII. The most unfaithful man in history. For his wife, Anne Boleyn. Tragic. <laughs> now, you mentioned that that's probably completely uh, not true. No. But, 
the symbol of green sleeves, the symbol of green is meant to be love that is fickle, Indeed. love that turns away, love that is not constant. Indeed. And so uh, when you're celebrating the birth of eternal love into the world at Christmas time, mm. right? The girdle, as we mentioned, there are sexual undertones, right? There is the undertone of cheating, of breaking vows, of forfeiting your faith, mm. right? To put your trust in something that is not the highest. Yes. Uh, there is also this connotation that green garments, green sleeves, green belts, mm. green girdles, right? Can symbolize a man or woman who is unfaithful in love. Interestingly, blue was the symbol of deep love in mm. the Middle Ages. And there is a modern film which uses that. Um, I can't remember the name of, um, but... <laughs> I mean, and not just one. There'll be multiple. No. Uh, whereas we use red today, deep blue was a symbol in the past, and green was the opposite of it. Indeed. And so, uh, what is... Uh, there is it's interesting because, uh, traditionally, Marian iconography is wearing... Blue. Indeed. That's to symbolize uh, her humanity, with usually red over the top to symbolize divinity. Yes. Uh, whereas Christ wears red underneath to symbolize that he is God, and then blue, blue over on top. top. Yes. Yes. So Gawain, as we've mentioned, this is probably the third or fourth time now, originally has blue on the inside of his shield because to have an icon of Mary naturally means that there will be blue will be present. And yet again, by the end, constant love. Right, the idea of eternal love has given way has given for way. fickle love, fickle in the, love in the green garden. Alas, my love, you do me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some of the interesting aspects about Sir Gawain. Now, I think one last thing to flag about Sir Gawain is mm. that this is one of the last, if not the last, medieval uh, Arthurian romances. Mm. The first Arthurian romance, Parzival, by forgive me for butchering. The name, Cretan de Troyes, Christian de Troyes, Christian of Troyes. That's how an Englishman like myself might yeah. uh, abominate that <laughs> name. Uh, Parzival features Gawain as well. Indeed, he goes alongside the Welsh idiot Parzival on his quest to find the Grail. Yes, well, Wales is always the end of the world in Arthur stories. It is. Um, the first and the last. It's <laughs> the edge of civilization, sanity, etc. Indeed. Now, Parzival and Gawain are two knights errant who go out to try and find the Grail and the Lance, respectively. Indeed. So I think it's interesting that in our first Arthurian romance, Gawain is so much a paragon of virtue that he can be deemed worthy to go and seek the Grail alongside Parzival. Mm. And yet in the final Arthurian romance, before Gawain is mentioned to have done anything of note with his life, he has already committed a transgression that he will wear as shame for the rest of his life. Indeed. It's almost like, and again, as Levi mentioned, there's no big Marvel Cinematic Universe of Arthurian stories. There's no one author connecting all these things and putting them into one con uh, piece of continuity. Mm. But, given that this is the last and Parzival is the first, it's likely that our anonymous author was familiar with a lot of these existing traditions from the French. Of course, of course. These are stories that have been around for over 100 years, 200 years at this point. Mm. So, it's interesting that this story ends with Gawain being unworthy and needing some sort of restoration. Mm. 
Because what is it? What is the one artifact in the entire world that can provide restoration to man, kingdom, soul, no matter what? The Holy Grail. Well, I think that's a bit of a Teasley vibe, but <laughs> if Gawain himself might need to seek that direction in the year to come after oh. his failure on New Year's at the Green Chapel, perhaps that's a direction we should be thinking about in our own project. Indeed, it might be an appropriate way to, you know, continue seeking the truth. Well, you'll hopefully be hearing from us soon when we record our main podcast to accompany the issue Strife Within, um, which we will release probably between Christmas and New Year's, and hopefully this one will be out Christmas Eve. That would be a reasonable guess, I think. Hopefully. And uh, in the meantime, we'll leave you with that tidbit. And we hope to uh, hear from you in our community discussions. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. We have a Substack, stack. Uh, and you can find all of that by searching the Incidental Encyclical or Incidental Encyclical magazine on the search engine or in those respective social sites. And we do have a Discord as well. If you want to join, just find a way to message us. Uh, that can be through Instagram through a Substack email, through um, uh, Facebook, and you can join the community there where we have been, for the past month, reading aloud with editors, contributors, and readers alike, Sir Gawain the Green Knight. It's been a great time. We Indeed. take turns, and people have always free to sit out if they don't want to read, just want to listen in. It's a bit like an old-time radio show, um, but with... Lots of different people all uh, jumping in, chiming in. So indeed, and you got to hear Sam do his uh, best Welsh accent. I try, <laughs> I try. It's it's all because of the audible version of Parzival, which the narrator, God bless his soul, decides to give pretty much every character a Welsh accent because it takes place in Wales. Yes, I understand why it, it ruins the immersion. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, anyway, enough of my beef with the Welsh. Let's <laughs> um, let's wrap up there. Indeed. And wish everyone a Merry Christmas, and we hope to hear from you uh, in the new year. Indeed. We would love to hear your thoughts and whatever avenue you seek to find us, and we'll be providing plenty of further content for you in the coming month. Brilliant. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>